I would love to start by doing like a little polling, getting everybody involved a little bit. So I would love to know how we divide up by generation. So I'm going to ask, and you can raise your hand when I call what generation you fall in, and uh, I'll work my way backwards. So if you are Gen Alpha, which you probably don't know that you're Gen Alpha if you're Gen Alpha, but I think we have a couple little ones in the room. So they're probably mostly down the hall, 22.6, but next would be Gen Z. So where am I Gen Z at? All right, if you don't know what you are and you're like young, you're Gen Z. They're calling them the Zoomers. I don't know how I feel about that. I don't, I don't know if I like Zoomers as a nickname, but it's okay. Where are my millennials at? Millennials raise, all right, millennials represent, okay. Where are my Gen X, Gen X? That's one of the cooler names. Feels like, you feel like an X-Men. You feel kind of cool, uh, Gen X. All right, what about baby boomers? Baby boomers in the room. Baby boomers, okay, not boomers, because that's an insult now, but baby boomers, that's the name of the generation. And then any greatest generation in the house, any greatest generation, I wasn't sure, man, that's the biggest flex of all the generation names, like the greatest, gen- and they deserve it, I, I'm not going to lie, they are greater than the rest of us. Well, uh, I kind of fall somewhere on the line between Gen Z and millennial, depending on what website you go to, it'll tell you different dates. And so growing up, I used to kind of flip-flop about what I would tell people I was. See, if you remember about 10, 15 years ago, if you were around, there was this cultural movement where like everyone ganged up and just hated millennials. I don't know if you remember this. Like millennials were just public enemy number one. They were like entering the workforce. Nobody liked them. And uh, I was like, yeah, it's because I'm Gen Z. Like it's great. Those millennials are the worst. And now, fast forward, everyone's like, maybe we spoke too soon about millennials. And Gen Z is like on TikTok, and they're getting super outspoken. And I'm like, yeah, I'm millennial, of course. Like those Gen Z and their TikTok apps. I'll let you know in another 10 years what I call myself. But right now, I'm a millennial. So uh, one of the things I find really interesting in culture is the way that culture will shift as each generation takes center stage, finds their voice, and begins to get active. And we've seen over the last 15, 20 plus years as millennials and Gen Zs are rising up, we're seeing cultural shifts happening all around us. One of the big ones, probably the biggest one, is the emphasis on the self, what some are calling expressive individualism. It is this attitude that says, to be the most authentic, true, real version of myself, to be the best me, I have to look inward because it already exists within me and I need to cultivate it and tease it out and and I need to look inward and it places all of the emphasis on the self. It was not this way just a short time ago. People found their value and their significance, their identity in their culture, in their community, in the external, but we are seeing a major shift towards the internal where people find their worth, value, significance from their individualism. Let me give you an example of how this plays out. Talk about careers and jobs. If you're young, high school, going into college, think about what you want to major in college, graduate, think about what you want to get a job, and there's a lot of pressure, and the pressure right now is for you to find this mystical, fabled job that you never get frustrated about, you always love, that you wake up loving everything you do, you never work a day in your life because these jobs exist, they're all over the place, right? There's no, there's uh, jobs all over where you never get frustrated or anything like that, and, and there is this emphasis on finding a career that satisfies you. Now, if you would have gone back like 50 years and asked someone, 
Hey, does your job satisfy you? Like take my, my grandfather, for example, Italian immigrant, grew up uh, post-World War II Italy, came here as an adult, worked in a factory, American dream style. If you would have asked him, hey, does your job satisfy you? He would have been confused. It would have been a foreign question to him. And he probably would have said something along the lines of, my job pays me money, that money puts food on the table for my family, and it puts clothes on my children's back, right? His job satisfaction didn't lay within himself, it actually laid within the way that he contributed to his community. Today we hear things like, I, my job satisfies me because I find the work rewarding, or it's pleasurable, or I love what I do. There's been an emphasis on the self, and with the career thing, I don't even think that's necessarily a bad thing. Like, I'm not, uh, I'm not coming down on that. I should think it's a good thing to find satisfaction in the job that you do, but I do think that our culture has shifted and become fixated on the self like never before. We live in a world that is very self-centered, right? We live in a me-centered world. It's all about my happiness, it's about my pleasure, it's about what feels good for me. We've co-opted language to be about me, right? So my truth, right? Because we can't step on the toes of individualism. And what this is, is that this is a worldview. This isn't just sometimes we make things about ourselves. We've created a worldview where everything is centered around ourselves. What a worldview is, is a lens by which you view the world. So if I take my glasses off, I can't really see very well. As soon as I put them back on through these lenses, I can see the world. That's what a worldview is. And what happens when something doesn't fit in your worldview is you either need to ignore it or pigeonhole it in. And so what's happened in the American church, especially here in the West is we've pigeonholed Christianity and we've pigeonholed God into our worldview where everything is about us. So if life is about me, if it's all about my pleasure, then God and Christianity and church must all be about me. I think that if I could grab like a group of American Christians and just kind of sit them down and get real honest answers from them about what Christianity is about, what Jesus is about, what church is about. I think I'd get some cookie cutter answers, but I think if I was able to get honest, heartfelt answers, I'd hear a lot about what God does for me. I'd hear about what, uh, it's, how it's all about me. And what we've done is we've taken passages that are true, that have a lot of weight and significance about God's blessings, about salvation, about how he is for us and not against us, but we've taken them out of their context. We've twisted them to make them about us in a way that I think is unhealthy. Now, don't mishear me because I don't need the emails this week. I do think that God is for you and not against you. I think that he has an unimaginable love for you and me. He has salvation and blessings for you and me. But what I want to get at today is that his motivation for all of these things is not that you and I are so awesome and the center of his universe. In fact, it's that he is so awesome and it's in spite of our unawesomeness. We do this a lot of different ways. If you're not a follower of Jesus, and I were to ask you, hey, what do you think Christianity is about? What do you think God is all about? What do you think this is? I'd probably hear some different answers from you. I'd probably hear things about uh, legalism, rule following. I'd probably hear things about uh, rituals and oppression and how God is holding you back from happiness and having fun, and I want you to hear today that that is not the heart of Jesus for you. That is not at what lies at the heart of God. We're going to talk about that. I want you to hear that today. 
But I think for many of us, it's about confronting a truth that an idol has crept into our lives. We've talked about idolatry here before. Idolatry is this idea that we have allowed something to become the center of our lives. We've taken something, maybe a good thing, and made it a God thing. We have taken something, we've taken God off the thrones of our hearts, and we've placed something else on that throne. And maybe you've thought, hey, I have a materialism idol. I place too much emphasis on material possessions. Or I have a lust or pleasure idol. I place too much emphasis on uh, worldly pleasures. But I really think what gets at the heart of all idolatry is the idol of self, that we place ourselves at the center. We place ourselves at the throne. And I get that confronting this isn't exactly fun. Like this may not feel like a super happy-go-lucky message right now, but I really, I want to get at this because the idol of the self loves to tease you with something. And it loves to tease you with happiness. It loves to give you bursts of momentary pleasure. It loves to make you think that if I just get this or if I just had that, I would be happy. But happiness is fickle. Happiness is temporary. It's a feeling. I think every single one of us knows what it's like to just have like the best day ever ruined by one stupid comment or silly thing that throws everything off. Happiness is here today, gone tomorrow. And happiness sometimes doesn't always satisfy. I actually think it rarely satisfies. Like a drug, you kind of end up living from high to high. And every time you come down, it feels worse than it did the last time. But on the other side of happiness is joy. And joy isn't a feeling. It's not temporary. Joy is a state of being. Joy perseveres through difficult seasons. Joy finds its satisfaction in something deep that doesn't change. And so I really think God's after your joy today. Like, like hear me, like I'm after your joy today as we talk about confronting this idol of self, and we don't always see the way that it creeps in and it infiltrates our faith, especially if you're a follower of Jesus. And you ever open the Bible and you start reading the Bible and you just start making it all about you? Like you ever insert yourself into a Bible story? You end up becoming the hero of the Bible story. So it's not David and Goliath anymore. It's me versus my depleted bank account. Or it's not um, Moses parting the Red Sea. It's me navigating through my difficult season at work, right? Like we turn the Bible into a story about us. And it's because we've been told that the Bible is some magical book that fell from heaven. It's a magical roadmap for your life. We've been told Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. Like this is such a dangerous way to read the Bible. You and I, we're not Moses. We're not David. The Bible is 66 historical books that we believe God has preserved and divinely inspired for our joy to teach us something with one central message the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. I'm not David. I'm not Moses. Jesus is the better Moses who leads his people out of the bondage of sin and death into eternal life. Jesus is the better David who rules on a throne with goodness and righteousness and love. You want to insert yourself into a story? I want to insert myself into a story. I'm one of the Israelites cowering in fear refusing to have faith in God, even though I just saw him do miraculous works on our behalf. 
to insert ourselves into scripture this way. It's dangerous. We do this with other passages, not just stories. Take Psalm 23, for example. If you've been a Christian for like more than a year, you probably have like a closet of Psalm 23 memorabilia, right? Like mugs and shirts and sweatshirts. Like everyone just gives Psalm 23 gifts for Christmas. And, and this is what it says. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. I mean, this sounds pretty amazing, right? Like God sounds like a really great butler here or, or a great vending machine, right? Like he's my shepherd. He leads me around. Some translations say I don't need anything or I have all that I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures, sometimes besides still waters. I mean, it sounds like it's all about me. But then look at what the author says in the very next verse. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Everyone say, for his namesake. This changes everything that we just read because the motivation behind everything that we just read, which is true, the Lord is my shepherd. I do have everything that I need. He does restore my soul and lead me down paths of righteousness, but he doesn't do it because I'm so great. He does it because he is so great, and we see this all over scripture. Isaiah 43 talks about how God created humanity for his glory. Isaiah 49 talks about God calling Israel for his glory. Psalm 106 talks about God rescuing Israel out of Egypt for his namesake. 2 Samuel 7, God gave victory in Canaan for the glory of his name. We see this in the New Testament. Romans 9 talks about how all things will be used in the service of the glory of God. John 7, 18 says that Jesus sought the glory of his father in all that he did. And John 14 talks about Jesus saying that God answers prayer so that he may be glorified. God's goodness, his salvation, his blessings find their source in God himself. God is not sometimes loving. He's not sometimes good. He doesn't sometimes act in righteousness. God is love. God is goodness. God is righteousness. He is the very thing which he pours out on us because he desires to make himself known. He desires to make his glory known. You and I are not the center of the universe. God is, I believe, really, this culminates in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is, and I think if we have a problem of self-idolatry, the only way to confront and kill that idol is to make great the name of Jesus. And so we need to keep moving because I'm still in my intro here. We've got to get to some scripture. We're going <laughs> to be in Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. This is written by Paul, and he says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So 
We're going to approach this text and the verses that follow by asking two simple questions. And the questions are this. What do these verses say about Jesus and what do these verses say about us? Which, by the way, if you are struggling to open up your Bible and get something out of it, I think this is an awesome way to start reading your Bible. I don't think it's by any means exhaustive. But I think to open up a passage and say, what does this say about God and what does this say about me will get you pretty far. So that's what we're going to ask. Paul here is specifically talking about Jesus and he says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. First, this is a claim to Jesus' deity. See, throughout centuries, there have been critics who tried to say, Jesus never claims to be God. The apostles never claim him to be God. Paul right here is claiming that Jesus is God. And he uses this phrase, image of the invisible God. And that can confuse people. What Paul is saying is that, God, that Jesus is the invisible God made visible. He's the unseen God made seen, the unknowable God made known. If you've been here for Christmas, you've heard us use the word Emmanuel. It's a title for Jesus that means God with us, that he is God incarnate. This makes Jesus, track with me here, the most perfect revelation of who God is. If you want to know who God is, that you don't have to look any further than Jesus because he is the most perfect image or revelation of who God is. It says that everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus was deeply involved in creation. I don't know if you ever thought about where Jesus was during creation. Not only did he pre-exist creation, Paul says here that all things were created by him, through him, and for him. Theologians call Jesus the agent of creation because we don't know necessarily how this worked out metaphysically, but all things were created through the power of Jesus. And that all things were created for him. This makes Jesus like the heir to creation, that all things proclaim the glory of God. They proclaim the glory of Jesus. Nothing is subservient to Jesus in creation. That's why Paul says, neither thrones or dominions or authorities or rulers, right? There is nothing created that, is, uh, that Jesus is subservient to. He is above it all. He also says that he holds all things together, right? Maybe you've heard this a theory of agnosticism that says God is a clockmaker. He started the clock, created the clock, and then walked away from the clock. That's not compatible with what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying not only did Jesus create, but he is constantly creating. He is constantly holding all things together. We've only touched on the category of creation, and we're already seeing the centrality of Jesus in everything, that all things are created by him, through him, for him, and he holds all things together. Paul also talks about the church. He says he is also the head of the body, the church. This is so important for us. Uh, Christ is the authority and the center of all church life. That means whatever's going on in church, Whatever's going on here, whatever's going on in Long Island, the global church, Jesus is the authority. He is the center. That means whatever leaders are doing, whatever church people are doing, we can have faith that Jesus is the authority and we need to make him the center of church life. This is also really practical, right? Like Paul had to deal with a lot of drama when he was doing ministry. Uh, he writes in 
different letters about how uh, there was these silly divisions that Christians would make. And they would say things like, oh, I'm a follower of Paul. And they say, I'm a follower of Apollos, or I follow this disciple or that disciple. And Paul had to step in and say, no, 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 we are all followers of Jesus. This should lead us to unity. And we do the same thing here, right? I'm this denomination. I'm that. And I go to Living Word, and you go to that church. I listen to Louis Giglio, or I listen to Matt Chandler, and, and we divide, and we divide, and we divide. And Christ's headship should call us to unity because everything centers around Jesus. It should call us to unity. And then Paul says that Jesus is the agent of reconciliation, that he brought about the reconciliation of all things. We're going to touch on this in a couple minutes. But through his great love and mercy, he made a way for all things to be restored back to himself. This firmly places Jesus at the center of all things. So if we ask our question again, what do these verses say about Jesus? It says that he is the center of of all things, and he deserves all of the glory. We're going to look at verse 21 and 22 right now, and this is what Paul writes. Once you were alienated, hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. So remember our second question, what do these verses say about us? It says two things. If you're a follower of Jesus, these verses say two things. They say who we were and who we are now in Jesus, that we were once alienated and hostile towards God. To be alienated means to be separated, that there was something standing in our way of closeness with God, in a relationship with God, and it was our sin, our tendency to deny the creator but worship created things, our tendency to go our own way and place ourselves at the center instead of Jesus. We were hostile towards God. We were enemies of God. We were opposed and at odds with God. But it says who we are now is that we have been reconciled through his death and resurrection. We've used this word reconciled a couple times now. What does it mean? To be reconciled means to be restored to a position of peace and closeness with God. Two things there, peace and closeness. We often misunderstand peace when we read the Bible. We, th we see the word peace, we think of like relaxing by the beach, right? A feeling of peacefulness. But often what the Bible writers are getting at when they talk about peace is a state of peace. I want you to think of two warring nations that meet up in Geneva or wherever they go to sign a peace treaty. They are going from a position of war to a position of peace. When it says we have peace with God, it means that we have gone from being enemies of God to being friends of God, that he has removed enmity from between us. We have peace with God. And second, closeness with God. If you were to flip open to the book of Genesis and read the first three chapters, you would see that Adam and Eve had a closeness with God that just makes my head spin, right? Like they got to walk with God, talk to him face to face, uh, be with him like a friend, but that closeness was lost by their sin. And Jesus restores that closeness through his death and through his resurrection. We can have that closeness with God again because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
And we think so much about forgiveness when we think about the cross. And, and certainly there is forgiveness. But what I want to say is, is maybe there's actually something more to it than just forgiveness. Now, don't mishear me. Um, it's actually an overhaul of your status and identity. The cross is an overhaul a redefinition of your identity and status. It is not just merely forgiveness. Like, because of the cross, I am, I'm not a guilty sinner forgiven. I'm innocent. This is what the text says, that, that we are presented to God as holy and blameless and faultless. Like, I go from guilty to innocent. You go from at fault to faultless. You go from bl at blamed to blameless. There is an exchange on the cross. God, Jesus takes my sin, he takes my guilt, but he gives me his innocence and his righteousness. Like, if God had some big God filing cabinet in heaven, and he, he walked over and he pulled out my file... It would not read a list of my sins that he's forgiven. It wouldn't be like, this sin forgiven, this sin forgiven. It would say, innocent, blameless, faultless. Not because of anything that I've done, not because of anything that I bring to the table, not because of anything that I've done to earn it, but because God, in his goodness and in his love, purely motivated by his goodness and his love, has made a way for you and for me to be called faultless, blameless, and holy. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with Jesus. Our bottom line today is that Jesus is worthy of being at the center. He is worthy of all the glory. He is the only one who can provide joy and satisfaction. And believe me, I'm preaching this to myself right now. Like there are seasons when it is hard to find your joy and your satisfaction in Jesus, to center it all around Jesus. But it is the only place where joy and satisfaction are found. Like I think of men throughout scripture that just got this concept in the way that they lived. I think of John the Baptist who said, like, uh, he must increase and I must decrease. Only a heart that knows that Jesus satisfies would say that. When Paul says things like, whatever you do, eat or drink, do it for the glory of God. Like Paul gets that his satisfaction, his joy is found in the glorification and making great the name of Jesus. And I get that this is completely counterculture because counter because uh, culture tells you you're at the center, everything's about you, it's all about your pleasure, your momentary happiness, and this says, no, no, you are at your best when Jesus is the most glorified. You are at your strongest when you are weakest. You are most satisfied when you are in surrender. And that's how you kill the idol of the self, to say things like, he must increase and I must decrease. It's the only way. It is the only way and it is the only thing that brings satisfaction. And, and hear me, um, your story does not need to haunt you today. Like when we talk about our own sin and the way that we've screwed up and the way that we've made ourselves the center and, and not God, like your story does not need to haunt you today because um, I really believe when you make Jesus the center and you're willing to surrender it all to him, even the dark parts of your story, he turns that for good. Like he turns 
those painful regrets for good. He does it all throughout Scripture with, with people who, by the way, are way worse than you and me. Like if you look at the laundry list of people that God used, you and I don't make the varsity roster. Like you and me are playing JV compared to some of these sinners, all right? Like let's just take a couple examples. Uh, let's take David. Anybody here ever cheat with your best friend's wife, get her pregnant, have your best friend killed? No? Okay, that's David. That's the man called a man after God's own heart. What about Paul? Any, uh, any former ISIS soldiers here? I know that sounds a little extreme, but Paul literally had a hobby of killing Christians, and he is called the, the father of preachers, right? Like he's written over 80% of the New Testament. These are the people that God uses, and I love Paul because he doesn't hide his story. He doesn't bury it. He doesn't downplay it. Like He gets up there. He says, I'm the worst of the sinners. I'm the worst. And if God could save me, he could save you. And I'm not telling you to go get a billboard with all your sins plastered on it. But what I'm saying is God can use your story, even the parts that seem so dark and twisted, for good. That's the result of a life lived with Jesus at the center. That's the result of a life that's focused on glorifying the name of Jesus, saying he must increase and I must decrease. So let's talk about two pieces of good news, because this is good news today. So first piece of good news, God is not after your begrudging submission. Like God is not after your blind obedience. He's not fixated on uh, rule following for the sake of rule following. I believe this today. He is after your joy. There's a pastor by the name of John Piper, and he says this very often. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. That when we find our satisfaction and our joy in God, that is when he's most glorified because he's the highest thing in our life. God wants you to be satisfied in him. His law is not meant to oppress you. It's not meant to hold you back from having fun. It's meant to lead you into deeper submission, deeper love for God, and ultimately deeper satisfaction for God. So does God want you to obey? Yes, of course he does. Is it because he's oppressive and holding you back? No. It is because he wants to lead you into deeper love and deeper submission towards him, which in turn leads to deeper satisfaction and greater glory for God. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, and, and this is kind of what you needed to hear today, that, that God's not after your religiosity. He's not after your blind rule following. He wants you to have joy in him. Our second piece of good news is that life is not about you. Breathe out. Life's not about you. And I say that this is good news because so many of the problems in our lives are because we make life about us, right? Like we're angry in traffic because people won't get out of my way because I'm on my way to work and they don't know how important I am, right? Like there's conflict in our marriages because my spouse won't act the way I think they should. They won't give me what I'm owed. There's conflict in our workplaces or our, our schools because I'm not getting the recognition or the pay raise or the promotion that I so obviously deserve when life is about you you are more tired you are more angry when life is not about you when life is about Jesus you're free like you're free when your marriage is about Jesus there's love there's forgiveness there's grace when it's not it's all about what you're owed it's all about what you deserve 
In everything that we do, we are free when it is about Jesus, not about me. I, I love the example of Paul, right? I've been talking about Paul a lot. Paul, Paul's pretty good, right? Like, Paul lived this out to a T. The authorities would come, they'd be like, Paul, we're going to kill you if you don't stop preaching the name of Jesus. He's like, cool, to die is game. It's all right, kill me. And they're like, fine, then we'll leave you alive. And he's like, cool, to live is Christ. They're like, okay, we'll throw you in jail. He's like, cool, I'll sing a couple hymns. I'll convert all your guards and all the prisoners. And they're like, fine, then we'll torture you. And he's like, cool, well, guess what? The uh, splendor of eternity is much greater than the sufferings of this world. Like, you don't win against Paul because it's not about Paul. Like, no matter what you throw at him, it doesn't matter because he's free, because he's living a life centered around the glory of Jesus' name. And you and I have that same opportunity today to make Jesus the center. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you've heard us talk about a lot today. We talked about sin, idolatry, uh, the self. But, but really the most important thing that you heard today is that Jesus has made a way for your salvation, a way for a complete overhaul of your status, that you could go from guilty to innocent, that you could have satisfaction and closeness and joy in God. He doesn't want to oppress you. He doesn't want to hold you back. He doesn't want your blind rule following. He wants joy and satisfaction for you that's found in a life following Jesus. And so if you want to place your trust in Jesus today, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that when we pray. But before we pray, we're going to, or sorry, before we close, we're going to sing a song after we pray called I Surrender All. It's a song we've sung here before, and, and I think it's an amazing Song for us to be able to sing, cry out as a prayer to God together and say, I surrender everything. There isn't a thing in my life I'm holding back. There isn't a thing that I'm letting stay at the center, God. You are at the center, and I surrender everything to you. So as we sing that in just a couple minutes, I want to encourage you to surrender everything to Jesus. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you, God, that it's not about us. That we can breathe out. That there's freedom in admitting life isn't about me. The world doesn't center around me. It centers around you, Jesus. So I pray right now, God. I pray, God, that you would lead us into deeper submission to you that you would lead us into deeper love for you, that you would lead us into deeper satisfaction to you, that we would live out this idea that you are most glorified when we are most satisfied in you, that we would make you the center, Jesus, that we would live lives characterized by making great the name of Jesus above all names. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you want to place your trust in Jesus today, you can pray something like this with me. Jesus, I believe that you died and rose again, that you have called me innocent and faultless and blameless. I want to have closeness with you, Jesus. I want to have satisfaction and joy in you. So would you come into my heart? Would you change my life? And by the way, if you prayed that, it is not a magic prayer. It's not a combination of words that saves you, but it is the heart that God sees. And if you prayed that, if you responded in that way, God wants you to keep responding by pursuing him every day. And so if you want to know what that looks like, please come find me after service. Come find one of the pastors or reach out to us online 
and we will come alongside you. We will talk to you and walk with you and show you what that looks like. Jesus, you are the center. We bow down and worship to you, Jesus. Right now, we take this opportunity to just say, I surrender all. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Pray this in your name. Amen.